The first epistle of Peter was written by Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen. There's no historical evidence that the early church believed the letter to be written by anyone other than Peter. In fact, the church fathers, Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria, and Irenaeus, each attribute authorship to the apostle Peter. According to 1 Peter 5.13, Peter wrote this epistle from Babylon. While many believe that Babylon was code for Rome, there is no substantial proof to interpret Babylon as anything other than Babylon in Mesopotamia. Babylon in the first century AD was the center of Judaism outside of Jerusalem, and it was from Babylon of Mesopotamia that the Babylonian Talmud was penned. Now Peter wrote this letter to believers who were scattered throughout five of Asia Minor's Roman provinces, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. The phrase scattered throughout refers to uh, Jewish believers who had been scattered as a result of the persecution against Christianity. Though they are residing in these Roman provinces, they are aliens or temporary residents. And because their residency was temporary, they did not adopt the culture of the people among whom they lived. They continued to live as Christians amid a pagan world hostile against them. Now, not only were they scattered, but they were also being slandered and maligned. 1 Peter 2.12, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. 1 Peter 3.14 and 16, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, and keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. 1 Peter 4, 4, 12, and 14. In all this they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rest on you. Christians were being accused of impiety and atheism because they refused to worship Caesar as Lord. David da Silva states, by withdrawing from cultic expressions of solidarity with the citizenry and loyalty and gratitude towards those who secured the well-being of the city, Christians especially were held in suspicion and stood at risk of being viewed as subversive, unreliable, and even dangerous elements of society. Because they were scattered and suffering, these believers were prone to loneliness and depression, as well as temptation and sin. Thus, Peter's purpose in writing was to encourage them to remain faithful while scattered and experiencing suffering amid a hostile world. In many ways, the church in the 21st century is facing a similar situation. The global pandemic has scattered local churches around the world. Additionally, the current age of rage and cancel culture has resulted in an increase in slander and hostility against biblical Christianity. Christians need to know how to respond to these trials critically, logically, and most important, 
biblically. Writing to Christians living in an age of hostility, Peter reveals that believers have been born again to a living hope, 1 Peter 1.3. And if there's one thing that scattered and suffering believers need, it is hope. This hope is not a wishful thinking, but an eager, confident expectation centered on the triune God. That this hope is living means that it is active and lively. It is not a passive hope that someone might do something. Instead, it is an active hope that knows that the triune God is doing something. And that something that the triune God is doing is the work of salvation, i.e. being born again. Thus, in 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2, Peter addresses the source of the believer's hope, the triune God. The believer's hope originates in the Father's foreknowledge, the Holy Spirit's sanctifying, and the Son's sprinkled blood. Let's consider that the believer's hope originates in the Father's foreknowledge. 1 Peter 1, beginning in part B, through the first part of verse 2, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Peter continues his greeting by reminding these scattered and suffering believers that they are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. The term chosen, eklektos, means select or choice. And each time the verbal form of chosen is used in the Greek, it's in the middle voice and plural person. Now, the middle voice indicates that the subject is choosing the object of the verb for himself. In other words, God chose believers for himself. Ephesians 1.4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. The plural usage of chosen means that the choice is of a group, not individuals. And as such, God's choice or election is concerned with creating a group or nation, not choosing isolated individuals. God chose the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy 7.6. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. The Levitical priests are elect. For the Lord your God has chosen him and his sons from all your tribes. The holy angels are elect. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels. 1 Timothy 5.21 And of course the church is elect. 1 Peter 2, 4, 6, and 9 You are a chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Now, this choosing or election of each group took place in eternity past and according to God's purpose. Again, Ephesians 1.4 tells us it was before the foundation of the world. And 2 Timothy 1.9 says that he saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose. The choosing of this group is according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, foreknowledge... Prognosco refers to a prior acknowledgement to be acquainted with someone before meeting that person. God knew in eternity past who would and would not receive his son as Lord and Savior. 
and those who would receive his son would become the church. In eternity past, God chose the means and method of humanity's salvation. God decreed to create all humanity and allow them free will along with its consequences. He decreed to provide salvation for humanity and to save every sinner who responds to his call. John 3.16, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Acts 2.21, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Acts 10.43, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Romans 10.13, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. The same Greek term, pas, is translated as either whoever or everyone. And of the 110 times the term whoever or everyone are used in the New Testament, they are always used in an unrestricted, unlimited manner. In other words, the terms do not refer to a specific portion of the populace. Now when the scripture says Christ died for all, again the Greek term pas is used. And it defines who are all. That is, sinners. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 5.14-15, One died for all. Therefore all died, and he died for all. 1 Timothy 2.4-6, and 6, He gave himself as a ransom for all. Titus 2.11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Hebrews 2.9, by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Jesus died for every person, even though his death is sufficient, only for those who repent and believe. 1 Timothy 4.10, for it is this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men. There again, his death is sufficient for all, but especially of believers. Again, there's the sufficiency is only for those who repent and believe. God graciously allows humanity free will to determine his or her eternal destiny. Those who refuse to repent and believe will, of their own choosing, spend eternity in the lake of fire. No one is cast into the lake of fire because God did not elect them. Finally, God decreed to foreknow all those who would believe, predestined them to adoption and conformity to the image of his Son, and elect or choose them to be holy in his presence. Ephesians 1 says, in ver beginning in verse 4, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purposes, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Romans 8.29 says, For in those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, predestination is God's means of guaranteeing that all believers will be adopted as his children. 
Adoption is the legal process of delivering believers from the realm of Satan. Colossians 1.13, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. And because we are adopted, we are God's children with all the rights and privileges of childhood. John 1.12, As many as received him, to them gave he the right to become children of God. Romans 8.15, You've received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. 2 Corinthians 6.18, And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Predestination is also God's mean of guaranteeing that we will receive our inheritance. Ephesians 1.11, We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counts of his will. Verse 13 to 14, Having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Finally, predestination is God's means of guaranteeing that we will be conformed into Jesus' image. Being made holy and blameless, predestined to an adoption, an inheritance, and conformity to Jesus is the source of the believer's hope. The believer has hope. And the source of our hope is the Father's foreknowledge. Secondly, the source of our hope is the Spirit's sanctifying. Again, let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1, second part of verse 1 through verse 2. Who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey. Now the word sanctifying here is to designate something that is set apart for a distinct purpose. For example... From a human perspective, a pen is sanctified when it is used to write. Again, the pen has been set aside for the specific purpose of writing. So any other use of a pen would not be a sanctified use. Accordingly, the Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology defines sanctification as meaning to make holy, to free from sin, to purify, to declare or render something productive of or conducive to holiness, blessing, or grace. Thus what God deems sanctified is holy, sinless, and pure, and is to be used for His intended purpose. Now the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit to obey is the second step in our salvation. Regarding the Holy Spirit's sanctifying work, William Barclay says this, It is the Holy Spirit who awakens within us the first faint longings for God and goodness. It is the Holy Spirit who convicts us of our sin and leads us to the cross where that sin is forgiven. It is the Holy Spirit who enables us to be freed from the sins which have us in their grip and to gain the virtues which are the fruit of the Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who gives us the assurance that our sins are forgiven and that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now this, sancti this salvation has both what we call a divine side and a human side. 
God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in truth. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 On the divine side, salvation is the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. That is, to make one holy, free from sin, and purified. Romans 5.16 says, To be a minister of Christ... Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, notice this, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. On the human side, individuals must respond with faith in the truth, the truth being the gospel. Consider that phrase, to obey, in 1 Peter 1, 2. Many English versions translate the Greek term uh, hupakoe as a verb, to obey. However, the term is an accusative case noun, which should be translated as unto obedience. And obedience means to listen and submit to that which is needed. Unto obedience refers to the obedience of faith. In Acts 6, 7, it says a great many of the priests were becoming what? Obedient to the faith. Romans 1, 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about what? The obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. Romans 16, 26, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations, leading to what? Obedience of faith. The act of faith is an act of obedience, as the call to salvation is the commandment of the eternal God to repent and believe. Furthermore, obedience is the work of the Holy Spirit, because the fruit of the Spirit is love, and if one loves Christ, John fourteen fifteen says, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Hence, obedience to God's command is proof of one's salvation. Are you obedient? Check yourself out. Examine yourself. If you're not being obedient, then perhaps it's because you're not saved. Now, the Holy Spirit, sanctifying of believers, is both positional and progressive. Positional and progressive. Positional sanctification is the act whereby the Holy Spirit separates us ethically and morally from the world. 1 Corinthians 6.11 says, You were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the Spirit of our God. Because the Holy Spirit separated us ethically and morally from the world underscores the commands to live in holiness and true righteousness. Ephesians 4.24 says, Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Colossians 3, 1-4 says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So because we're sanctified, we need to live in holiness and true righteousness. Now, while the Spirit has set believers apart positionally, 
There's a practical aspect of that sanctification that plays out in our daily lives. It's called progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit by which we progressively become holier. 1 Peter 1.16, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Being set apart from sin, believers, you and I, should be striving to make that a reality in our daily life. Are you doing that? Are you daily striving to be more holy than you were the day before? Are you striving daily to be more like God, to be more like Christ? The command to work out one's salvation points to this idea, Philippians 2.12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in, as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now this verse does not mean that we work for our salvation, but rather that our salvation works in our life. Because we are saved, believers will sin less and less. And over time, believers will mature in their faith. Philippians 3.15, Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. Maturity in a believer's life is going to be marked by the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22-25, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. 2 Peter 1, 5-8, Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence knowledge, and in your knowledge self-control, and in your self-control perseverance, and in your perseverance godliness, and in your godliness brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the work of sanctification began at the moment of salvation, and it's continuing throughout your life. So, believer, we have to, you and I need to constantly be examining our lives and are we seeing the sanctifying work going on? Are we maturing? Do you see the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Now the first way in which that manifests is in love. Do you have love for others or do you despise others? Do you look down at them because they may have a difference of opinion than you? Or because they don't see things the same way as you do? How about peace? Do you strive to be at peace with all people? Kindness, you know, is our first inclination to be kind or to get even. Uh, goodness, again, are, you know, are we striving to do things that are good or are we okay just doing that which is evil? Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, it goes on. And again, you can see the same thing in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5 and 8. Now, the list is kind of in reverse here with some additional things, but again, you see some of those same things. Love, and love emanates self to brotherly kindness, brotherly kindness, goodness, goodness, perseverance, perseverance, uh, self-control, self-control, knowledge, knowledge, moral excellence, moral excellence, faith.
fruit production is a sign of maturity. Knowing that you are maturing is assurance that you are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And knowing that the Holy Spirit is sanctifying you provides you, believer, with hope, particularly in a hostile world. So we've seen that the source of the believer's hope is in the triune God. First, the source of the believer's hope is in the Father's foreknowledge. Secondly, the source of the believer's hope is in the Spirit's sanctifying. And now thirdly, the source of the believer's hope is in the Son's sprinkled blood. The Son's sprinkled blood. Again, let's, let's go back to verse 1, th- uh, part B, through verse 2. Who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Now we need to be clear here that the Greek text actually reads, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit unto obedience and be sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ. As we already noted, the phrase, to obey is actually connected to the sanctifying of the Spirit. We're being sanctified by the Spirit unto obedience, the obedience of faith. To be sprinkled with His blood, that is Jesus Christ's blood, describes the third step in our salvation. So again, we have the foreknowledge of the Father, we have the sanctifying of the Holy Spirit, and now we have the sprinkled blood of the Son. Jesus Christ cleanses the sinner through his precious blood. Now, blood is necessary because it is the symbol of life and death. Leviticus 17:11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Blood is also necessary because it is the divine cleansing agent. Back in Genesis chapter 3, when humanity sinned against God, God slaughtered a lamb. He shed its blood to cover or atone for their sin. And from that moment forward, blood became the divine cleansing agent. Hebrews 9.22 says, And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. So the shedding of Christ's blood grants forgiveness of sin. Matthew 26.28, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 1.7, In him we have redemption, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. So the shedding of Christ's blood grants forgiveness of sin. But the sprinkling of his blood results in purification. Hebrews 10.22, Let us draw near with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure Water. 
1 John 1, 7, If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. It purifies us. Our hearts have been sprinkled. So the shedding of the blood grants forgiveness, and then the sprinkling of the blood results in purification. Now, sprinkled with his blood is an Old Testament reference. And there are only three occasions in the Old Testament when the people were sprinkled with sacrificial blood. First, the people were sprinkled at the purification ceremony of the healed leper. Leviticus 14, 6 and 7 says, As for the live bird, he shall take it together with the cedar wood and the scarlet string and the hyssop, and shall dip them and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was slain over the running water. He shall then sprinkle seven times the one who is to be cleaned from the leprosy, and shall pronounce him clean, and shall let the live bird go free over the open field. Now through Christ's sprinkled blood, believers are cleansed from sin. Second, the priests were sprinkled with blood at their ordination for service. Exodus 29, 21. Then you shall take some of the blood that is on the altar and some of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and on his garments and on his sons and on his sons' garments with him. So he and his garments shall be consecrated as well as his sons and his sons' garments with him. In like fashion, the sprinkling of Christ's blood sets the believer apart for service to God. Third, the people were sprinkled with blood when the Mosaic Covenant was ratified with the reading of God's law, making the people liable to obey God. Exodus 24, verse 7 and 8, Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now on the ratifying of the Mosaic Covenant, R.C. Sproul states this, In the worship of the Old Testament, the death of the victim establishes a covenant, and the sprinkling incorporates the worshipers as participants, making them publicly liable for the covenant's benefits and responsibilities. Additionally, John MacArthur states, sprinkling sacrificial blood on the people of Israel as a symbol sealing their covenant as they promised to obey God's word. Likewise, in the new covenant, faith in the shedding of Christ's blood on the cross not only activates God's promise to give the believer perfect atonement for sin, but also brings the believer into the covenant by one's promise of obedience to the Lord and his word. Therefore, the sprinkling of Christ's blood ratified the new covenant and inscribed God's law on the hearts of believers, that's you and I, and committing us to obedience to God. Again, obedience to God's commandments or law is a witness to one's salvation. And if there's a lack of obedience in one's life, you need to be examining yourself to find out why. If you love me, keep my commandments. Those who obey me are those who love me, Christ said. 
And again, when he sprinkled the blood, he initiated believers into the new covenant. He wrote the new covenant on our hearts. And in writing God's law on our hearts, he committed us to obedience. Now note that the sprinkling of Christ's blood results in grace and peace. Now the phrase grace and peace was a typical Christian greeting that combined the Gentile and Jewish greetings. For the Christian, grace is not only the loving favor which God bestows on a sinner, but it's his enabling strength for daily living. 1 Corinthians 15.10 But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. The Hebraic view of peace includes all the blessings associated with salvation during the Messianic age. This peace was initiated when Christ shed his blood on the cross, Colossians 1.20, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And Peter's desire is that this grace and peace be in the fullest measure or multiplied in abundance. That phrase, in the fullest measure, or be multiplied by you, is a Hebraic idiom often found in Jewish prayers. We see it in 2 Peter 1, 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you. And in Jude 2, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. And certainly, these suffering and scattered believers needed an abundance of God's grace or God's favor to endure hostility. And additionally, they needed an abundance of peace, not to prevent the hostility, but to have inner calm amid the hostility. Because you have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ, he shed his blood, your sins are forgiven, you've been sprinkled, that is, you've been cleansed, you've been purified, you've been purified for service, you've been purified for obedience, and he says, now because you have been sprinkled with his blood, you have been given grace and peace and a multiplication of grace and peace. Surely, believers today, you and I need an abundance of grace and peace. Do you have grace and peace? Do you have an abundance of grace and peace? How do we receive this abundant grace and peace? Well, first, abundant grace and peace come through prayer. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So abundant grace and peace comes through prayer. Are you praying? Are you praying for God's strength? Are you praying for God to give you an inner calmness? Especially in this days of hostility. Hebrews 4.16 Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Second, abundant grace and peace come by clothing oneself in humility towards others. 1 Peter 5.5 5, Clothe yourself with humility toward one another, 
For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, humility refers to lowliness of mind. William MacDonald says that loneliness is a genuine humility that comes from association with the Lord Jesus. Lowliness makes us conscious of our own nothingness and enables us to esteem others better than ourselves. It's the opposite of conceit and arrogance. And in 1 Peter 5, 5, it tells us to clothe ourselves with humility. That means to enter into a particular state or condition. Colossians 3.12 tells us to put on humility. Put on is to be filled with a quality or condition. So when we take put on and clothe, both in the imperative mood, the mood of command, it means that you and I as believers are being commanded to be endowed with humility and enter into a state of humility. And this only comes by continuously comparing ourselves to God, not others. And to be clear, humility is not thinking less of oneself, but thinking less about oneself. It's thinking more about God and others than oneself. And we're told here that God provides grace to those who humble him themselves. And he opposes those who are proud, James 4, 6. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Third, abundant grace and peace comes by growing in the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. Second Peter 1, 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Growing in the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ requires study and meditation in the Word of God. And believer, you must heed the warning of Isaiah 5 and Hosea 4, My people perish for a lack of knowledge and go into exile. My people perish for a lack of knowledge. You need the grace. You need that peace. You need the inner strength of God. You need that inner tranquility. But without studying and meditating in the Word of God, not only will you not get that grace and peace, but you'll perish. There's great hope in the sprinkled blood of Jesus Christ. That sprinkled blood of Jesus Christ that gives grace and peace. The first epistle of Peter is addressed to scattered believers living as exiles in a hostile land. Similarly, believers are increasingly beginning to understand that they too, we too, are living in a hostile land. We must remember, believer, that our citizenship is in heaven, and as such, we must live in this world not as residents. We must not live in this world as tourists. We can only live in this world as exiles. What is an exile? An exile is one who lives in their present country while retaining the character of their original country. Exilic living is the meaning behind the slogan to be in the world but not of the world. This present world is hostile. This present world is full of rage. 
and this present world is seeking to cancel anything or anyone that they perceive disagrees with their opinions or ideas. Therefore, believer, do not be surprised if and when the world turns on you, if and when the world comes after you, if and when the world tries to cancel you. Jesus said in John 15, 19, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Though living amid hostility, believer, you and I have hope. Not just any hope, but an active, eager, and confident expectation that knows that the triune God has chosen us as his children. And believer, because we've been sanctified by the Spirit, because we've been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ, we can never, ever lose our adoptive status or be forsaken by our Heavenly Father, no matter how hostile the world becomes. When discouragement creeps in, believer, remind yourself that you are the chosen of God according to His foreknowledge and predetermined purpose and plan. And because God's purposes and plans cannot fail or be foiled, believer, we need not despair. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank and praise you, Lord, for the word that you've given to us today. I thank you, Father, for this text of Scripture that shows us the source of our hope. The epistle of 1 Peter is wonderful, particularly in a day and an age in which there is growing hostility towards the things of God. And much like the believers of the first century, so now believers today around the world are being scattered and are even facing slander, maligning, and yes, many are even facing persecution. Father, I pray that you would not let them despair, but that rather, Father, you would come alongside of us and help us to know that living hope that dwells within us. And that, Father, just by looking at these two verses, we may be reminded that our hope is not wishy-washy, but it's an active, eager hope, expectation, because of your foreknowledge, because of the Spirit's sanctifying, and, Lord, because of the sun sprinkled blood. Father, Lord, if there's anyone listening that uh, is struggling in these areas, Father, perhaps they've examined themselves and they're not sure of their salvation, that, Father God, you may make clear to them through your word that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, and the word of God says all have sinned and come short of your glory. And because of sin, Father, all are on their way to hell. But you offer redemption through the sinless Son, your sinless Son, Jesus Christ, who died and shed his blood on the cross of Calvary, buried and three days later rose again. And then, Father, when we repent of our sin and put our faith in that work of Jesus Christ, we too will be saved. And the proof of that salvation will be seen in our submission to your Son as our Lord. Father, if there's someone listening, Lord, that's struggling in 
the area of obedience. Father, let them examine their lives to see what area, Father, that what, what's causing this disobedience. Perhaps, Father, they're not saved, or perhaps there's something that needs to be dealt with, needs to be confessed and forsaken so that they can continue in obedience. And Father, many are struggling with grace and peace. Lord, believers around the world, believers right here in our own neck of the woods, so desperately need your strength. I pray that you would pour out your grace abundantly upon them. And Father, they need that inner tranquility, and I pray that you'd pour that out abundantly on them as well. Give them that grace, give them that peace that only you can give, not that the world gives. And Father, may we be comforted in the words of Jesus. They hate us because they hated him. And so, Father, we stand in good company. We pray this in your Son's precious and holy name. Amen.